Hello and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson. I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach. And today I'm delighted to welcome Gabriella Braun. Gabriella is the director of Working Well, a specialist consultancy firm that uses psychoanalytic and systemic thinking to help leaders and teams understand the hidden truths of their behaviour at work. She has worked with organisations ranging from the British Library and Cambridge University to the Tate. She has just published her first book, All That We Are, Uncovering the Hidden Truths Behind Our Behaviour at Work. In this podcast, she talks about the joys and perils of dealing with the unconscious and what holds us back. Hello, Gabriella, and welcome to The Art of Work. I'm, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. And I really loved your book. It, it reminded me of Stephen Gross's The Examined Life, which, of course, describes the changes that took place in individuals as they had psychoanalysis. Was that, but of course, this is for organisations and groups. Was that any kind of inspiration for you, that book? Thank you very much for inviting me, Christina, and I'm delighted to be here. Um, I've heard some of your wonderful podcasts, so to be a guest here is wonderful for me. My pleasure. Stephen Gross's book was a huge inspiration, actually. Um, His book affirmed for me that it really is possible to talk about psychoanalysis in a way that is very accessible to people who who don't know anything about it so yes it was a big mm. part it was a big inspiration behind my book interesting because um I have had loads of therapy stroke analysis stroke everything else really <laughs> so I do know a fair bit about it but um I think to turn it into stories in that way human stories in that way I, I thought you did it so well and uh and even though I you know, I have a pretty good sense of how these things work. I was really absorbed and and gripped by them. So I think that's quite an achievement, really. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I mean, I I found that it was always my ambition to write it as stories, but my ambition and my skills didn't match each other at the beginning of the process at all. And what I found was that I really needed to learn to write. So how did you learn to write? Because uh, presumably you had uh, done, uh, well, you've been writing papers, academic papers and presenting conferences and writing reports and all the writing that anyone has to do in running a business or just working for an organisation. But this, you you say, I think on the last page that it brought you great joy, the process that you discovered that writing could be joy. Can you tell me a bit about that transition and how you learned to write? Yes. I think I think I unwittingly returned to something from childhood, but I had no idea that's what I was doing. So when I was about seven or eight, I was often commended by my teacher for writing stories. And in in my early adolescence, I was good at writing stories. The education system very sadly drummed that out of me so that I learned to recall, you know, recall facts as best I could to pass exams. It all went, although I studied English for my degree, so I never stopped. I I loved literature. It was always incredibly important to me. So that never went. Mm -hmm. But the, the early bit of writing never developed. And I think what happened was I, I actually went, it was about 
maybe a year after my mother died, which was quite a momentous time for me. And I went on a writing course in France and it was called a beginner rights or begin to write something like that um, run by a, a brilliant teacher in France, an American guy. Um, and I loved it. A writer begins. I absolutely loved it. And little did I know, I had no idea that a couple of years later, I'd be back saying, okay, I've run all these seminars now about leadership and psychoanalysis. I've come here on a retreat, I'm going to turn the seminars into chapters, because I realise there's a book here. And surely it's, it's a piece of cake. You know, I've got all these chapters, I've worked incredibly hard to get the chapters together. One chapter equals one one, one seminar e equals one chapter. Sorry, I've got all these seminars. So surely that's really easy. Mm -mm. <laughs> no, it so wasn't easy. And I struggled like mad on that retreat. And then I asked this guy to be my mentor mm -hmm. and it developed from there. And of course, um, part of the process of psychoanalysis is making conscious that which is unconscious so one of the things you're writing about a lot is how those those unconscious things rise to the surface both for you and for your clients you had already been through that process of discovery and insight in those situations those slightly fictionalized situations did you gain additional insights in the process of writing the book hugely um both about some of my work so in the sense that I realized I got a much greater sense of how I worked actually and it revealed to me that although I knew I always used what is called counter-transference the emotional response of the consultant or the analyst to to what's going on um, I, I knew I used that, but I had no idea how much I used it. When I started writing, I thought, God, I really use this a lot. So that, that was quite revealing for me. Mm. And also to realise just how much my clients occupy my mind. Mm. And, you know, I, I kind of take them in and they live there for a long, long time, in a way forever, but... Mm in a way you know they recede in some ways after years but so that was a big learning and I also learned a lot about myself so the thing that I mention in speaking the unspeakable oh gosh that I, devastating chapter that mm. it's 100, 130 just for the sake of listeners that's a chapter about how we carry trauma both in ourselves, but also down the generations, even you suggest to the point of being in our DNA, which I thought was fascinating. Mm. But mm. Um, this is about your family's Holocaust history and the fact that certainly by summer 2021, I think you discovered that 136 members of your family had been murdered in the Holocaust. And you talked about experiencing, sort of being surprised in analysis, experiencing, uh, the state what you realized was the state of terror that your parents must have experienced so anyway I interrupted by that with that it's no really important to make that clear really really important to make that clear what I hadn't understood in my analysis and I came to when I was writing that chapter was that it was the impact of those silences in our family 
that had that was part of my motivation to do the work that I do I had no idea mm. until I was writing the book where it suddenly came to me and I suddenly thought oh my god this is part of what why I do this fascinating and silence in itself is a very powerful tool isn't it so tell me mm. so tell me why you didn't become an, a psychoanalyst and why you did choose to apply the techniques in your in the field you now work in and also for the sake of a listener can you explain the work you do now which the book is essentially about of course um great question interesting question so let me start with the work that i do i work with leaders i work with teams i work across organizations all different types in the arts in education in health business you know different types of organizations and basically i help them to work as well as they can be as well as they can but i what's different is using psychoanalysis and systemic thinking to really understand some of the very invisible stuff that's go going on all the time under the surface that we we do now often think about at least a bit in the family life like we're very accustomed to things like sibling rivalry which come from psychoanalytic thinking but we'd never think about that in the workplace where it's rife I haven't come across an organization that doesn't have any sibling rivalry and why why wouldn't they we all bring that stuff with us to work so that's that's my work the reason I did that rather than become a psychoanalyst um I think it was age I think I was 42 when I went into analysis. I think if I'd gone into analysis maybe 10 years earlier, mm -hmm. I might have decided I wanted to become an anal analyst. But at that age, by the time I came through analysis, I was well into this work and really liking it. And it felt too late, really, to start a whole new career and I couldn't have done it I couldn't possibly have done it without a full analysis I couldn't have been a clinician without a yeah. I mean everybody has to have an analysis if they're going to be an analyst mm. but that's for some people that's about fine-tuning really understanding for me it would have been impossible without it yeah I, it I don't think I could have been a decent consultant without it either no but you're allowed to be yeah well that's interesting that's interesting because it's um i mean it's an, a long arduous expensive process isn't it but absolutely i, I don't and no guarantee that you'll find people who can afford you private clients you can who can afford you um even at the end of that process but uh, i find it hard to see how you could practice in that area without having pretty a pretty a sort of powerful experience of analysis yourself yeah. actually yeah i totally um, agree and i want to i want to I, without going into the politics of it but just to help listeners understand i think we've all been gripped by a dysfunctional workplace that unfortunately is our government and downing street and um i wondered without giving us the full sue gray or indeed the full metropolitan police report <laughs> whether you can give a very brief professional summary of of what you think uh, 
of what your assessment in your role as as a consultant would be of that scenario that situation what's at the heart of it oh i think it's i do it as much as anybody else and it's very easy to look at downing downing street and look at the prime minister and be appalled and think oh my god you know how is this going on what sort of perversion and corruption and incompetence and pile of excrement is this but i think it's too easy to forget that we put them there you know we voted we voted for this prime minister we we put these people in power and i think to understand it we have to take that on board as well mm. Mm. and for me it's i mean i i this is probably a dangerous thing to say, but I, I think there are some people in government who are really not very well psychologically. I mean, really not very well um, and, and can't manage the demands of government. And I think the culture that's grown around that is that people turn a blind eye. That's one of the chapters in my yeah. book. And we 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 do have a propensity to turn a blind eye because it's easier than speaking the truth i think there are people i imagine sue gray must be incredibly strong as a character because she must have been put under so much pressure mm -hmm. so you know whether people can withstand that pressure or not is a massive thing mm. but i think there are all sorts of things in the mix with this i mean one of them is our mortal fear that has come into being during the pandemic, which I think allows us to latch on to people who will try and make light of things, say it'll all be fine, we'll just do that, and everything's great. We know it's not great. We know it's not like that. Mm. But a bit of us really is desperate to believe. Mm. Okay, so we'll be fine by Christmas. It'll all be over. And mm. we can spend, we can have wonderful Christmases, ignoring the fact that we're making each other sicker and sicker. Mm. But we want to believe that. So I think that's part of it. I also think that bigger, well, other issues like climate change, actually, I think that's part of it as well. I think we're in an absolute crisis everywhere we turn. And so the temptation to allow people in power who will just speak nonsense and be deluded and think that we'll go along with their delusion is, is quite strong. Because we, very, we just want to deny everything at the that's moment. That's so interesting. That's so interesting because um, it's interesting on, on many fronts, but uh, one of them is the chapter you write about losing the plot where um, mm. an organisation basically goes mad. Mm. And, uh, the, and the particular context was of a consultation of kind of massive restructuring with 50% mm. of the staff jobs at risk. A chief exec who comes in sort of in, commands everybody to enact this uh, restructuring um, and uh, impossibly sort of won't listen to any dissenting voices, doesn't mm -hmm. hear many dissenting voices because people are too scared, and then basically leaves and leaves everybody in a complete disaster, but disaster zone. But the chair does collude and and therefore has kind of gone mad. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I, I think you, you'd have to be mad not to see madness at the heart of Downing Street 
at the moment yes. and for some time there is yes. certainly something psychotic and destabilizing about it um but for those of us so you know obviously being a, a, anyone who knows me or listens to this knows that the very word optimism makes me want to run screaming um so i i never for one moment i i knew this pandemic the minute it hit i thought oh my god it's going to be years and i don't know if we're ever going to come out of it so i literally couldn't believe that people thought it was going to be over in a few weeks and when the government stood there saying this is going to you know we'll be through this in 12 weeks i i, I just you know absolutely despaired but um i wanted to ask you really about I mean, we have to accept that collectively as a country, we did vote for these people, even if we didn't individually vote for these people and are heartbroken that these people are in government mm. and heartbroken mm. about Brexit and heartbroken about all kinds of other things. I, I sort of accept that we have to accept collective responsibility, though it feels very hard because the electoral system in itself skews things in such a way that, for example, the um, the influence of the so-called red wall voters seems considerably higher than than most of ours. But anyway, we have to put that to one side. So we have this this government, this denialist government, really, that prefers to say everything is fantastic and just boosterism, literal boosterism, kind of Bertie Wooster boosterism. Mm. And the effect certainly on me, because you talk about the effect of illusion and disillusion in the book, the effect on me has been a really a profound despair i mean I, not i am not personally depressed i am personally very happy but from a big picture point of view as a citizen of this country um i feel i carry a weight of shame and despair despair because i can't i mean there's a brief brief flickering of hope at the moment because i think boris johnson will leave and somebody will take over and whether that will lead to a better government of any stripe one can only hope. But I really wonder, given that your job is in a sense partly kind of carrying people's despair and pain, not in the way that an analyst does, but in a group situation, how do we as individuals manage that? Oh, um, can I start with the despair and what you said about optimism? It, it makes me smile and I it's one reason I love your podcast, because you <laughs> refuse to go along with it. I did, you, you probably smiled when you read the bit in looking back to move forwards. And they say to me, we're embracing change. Yes, it's yes, great. Exactly. And I'm like, bollocks. oh, God. Bollocks. No, I like your use of the word Pollyanna. I can't remember if it was there or elsewhere. It was yeah, there. Yeah. It was yeah. exactly there. It's like, oh, I can't bear it. Um, so I agree with that completely. And I've been during this period at times despairing and full of utter rage. I mean, murderous rage. Absolute like and and exactly as you say the terrible shame about what the hell we've done and how have we how have we degenerated so fast as a country and a nation mm. and the effect of that on us mm. so i think that to help people with that i mean i've been enormously helped by writing the book mm. and having a real focus and deadlines and then the excitement of the book being published and having a wonderful team behind me getting incredible opportunities like this that's really helped me and and I agree with you also I think there is a moment of hope now that there hasn't been for a long while but in the workplace some of the time I'm 
you know, sometimes I've worked with teams during this period and I've come off the Zoom with working with them and I felt dreadful. Mm. And I've just sat there and cried because mm. I've just thought, oh my God, what they're trying to deal with. It is horrendous. And to, you know, when you work with an NHS team oh, that is, oh, it, oh it's so terrible what they're trying to deal with and they keep going. They just keep going and it's absolutely admirable. It's also costing people a mm. lot mm. individually and collectively, um, but they keep going. And I think they partly keep going because they keep a focus on what they are doing and what they are responsible and what they can do. And what we sometimes think about together in sessions is what people can and what they can't do, what they yes. can influence and what they can't influence. Yes. And that's one way of dealing with it, that actually trying to try, because there's a temptation in the despair to lose all sense of agency. Mm. Like there's absolutely nothing, because in a way there, there is little that we can do about some things. But that's really desperate when we lose all sense of our own agency. So it's something about keeping hold of our own agency and what yes. we can do. Yes, but I, yes, and I completely agree with that. And I can only imagine, well, I don't have to imagine because I've reviewed a number of books by people well, like Rachel Clark and mm. people who've been working during this time. And, it, and it's heartbreaking, but I have to admit, there's a part of me that's been quite envious because I thought, yeah, but you're doing really important stuff. I'm piddling at home in my bedroom. And um, the, this sense that there, there are the heroes and then the rest of us who are doing whatever we're doing. And of course, the, the uh, luster of heroism to supermarket workers and all those on, on the so-called frontline faded pretty quickly. And it certainly wasn't matched by money or respect that lasted beyond a kind of brief brief flicker of uh, attention or the odd newspaper article but um I suppose I suppose I'm sort of really thinking aloud about um how far we believe in our work and how far we believe it's making a contribution and I'm intensely aware that there's a big fashion for purpose now and you know every organization on the face of the planet however commercial talks about its purpose to me, so much of it looks like PR or even brainwashing employees. If it provides value that's to somebody somewhere, that's working as good. And, and it, it working, I think, you know, it, generally speaking, enhances the quality of one's life. But I just wondered, you know, if you could say a bit about that whole thing about purpose and passion and the new expectations, really, that it's almost as if work now has to be a vocation, particularly mm. for the millennials and, the, and those who are younger. Mm. Mm. And I think that can be a very helpful thing and a very negative thing because it loads everything so much. Like if you, if, in fact, I, I had a very interesting interview with a journalist who is a millennial and she was saying she thought that for them, if anything goes wrong at work, it's so much worse because it's your mm. whole self then. Mm. I think that's absolutely true. You know, if, if you get a little criticism at work, you can then think, oh, my God, all of me is rubbish. Mm. I, I'm, if I'm failing in this and it's my vocation and it's my chosen passion, I must be absolutely rubbish. Mm. Whereas if it's a job, it's OK, this isn't going so great, but there's the whole rest of my life yeah so I I think that is a problem um 
Although I also think it's lovely having passion about your work. Mm. I do think it can be used in a PRE kind of, um, you know, just like banner headlines painted bright colours, which has no substance behind it. But I think when people really think about their purpose, to, to use the word, I mean, one chief executive or, or managing director during this whole time said to me, my, I don't think he said purpose, I think he might have said aim, mm. but my aim during this is not to make anyone redundant. And I thought, actually, that's a fantastic That's aim. a really good aim, I agree. That is yeah. a fantastic mm. aim. And he was really clear, that's what I want to do. Mm. And when he did it, he was so proud. We didn't make anyone redundant. We haven't lost any staff. I'm so proud of that. Mm. Now, to me, that has, for me, it's meaning in a way more than purpose. It's the meaning of your work. It's the, and if you're a managing director and you employ a lot of people whose families depend on you, yes, you know, to be able not to make any of them redundant and to really care about that, that's fantastic. Yes, but to have a kind of we're going to be the number one, whatever, um, everyone's going to have heard of us in the whole wide world and blah blah blah. That's a bit vacuous. Mm. And the meaning is whatever you choose to give it, isn't it? The meaning yes. is a story you tell about it, really, isn't it? Yes. And you tell yourself as much mm. as other people. Yes, yes, yes. So and the story can be made up or it can have truth. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And uh, obviously some of us would prefer the ones that sound vaguely feasible. But I mean, yes, you know, hey. yes, <laughs> yes. Um, definitely. Broadly speaking, obviously, if you hate your boss, or your colleagues, or you're in a toxic work culture, you're very unlikely to enjoy your work. But broadly speaking, what would you say are the key criteria for work that is fulfilling or good enough to use your phrase? Um, I think about this in terms of attachment theory, actually. And I think that to help us at work, we need to either we could have all but one or two is great either be attached to the organization for whatever reason we really believe in this particular newspaper or, or whatever it is so that's one thing that helps us or we're attached to our colleagues and we have camaraderie and we care and we feel cared about and we're valued and we value them that's a second thing and the third thing is attachment to the work itself mm. and I don't think we have to have all three mm. but there are ways in which we there there are ways that engage us in our work and help our work be good enough and the the having attachment to the work itself can be for any number of reasons mm. and they'll be very personal you know that's, they really, that's really interesting I've, I've never seen it through an attachment theory lens before and that's really interesting because it um it kind of demolishes the myth or, or at least breaks some of the idealism of the whole thing doesn't it yeah yeah people don't think it's one of the reasons I was motivated with the book that I think these psychoanalytic ideas have so much to say to the workplace and they're not said and people don't think about them and, and they can just people can suddenly go oh oh that makes sense 
Well, I, I agree, but I remember when I was at The Independent so many years ago, I, I discovered that there was um, a conference about Freud. I can't remember, it must have been 150th anniversary since his birth or something, I don't know what it would have been. Um, can't have been because when was it? No, it can't have been that. But anyway, something significant. And uh, and I suggested this to the arts editor, and he he said okay, but he was worried that. Well, anyway, I wrote the thing. I went to the conference. I interviewed lots of people. It was fascinating. And then he decided that Freud was too unfashionable, even though one of the subjects I had uh, tackled was, you know, whether there was still relevance in Freud, because obviously he had been so incredibly influential and was then out of fashion. Given how much he has faded really from fashion, how far do you think pe people generally are prepared to take his ideas or the kind of broad outline of his ideas about the unconscious ser seriously? Of course, there's Jung as well. so. There's a whole kind of bundle there, but Freud personally, do you think he features much now? Hugely, absolutely hugely. Although I think if you go into a workplace and say, I'm now going to talk to you about Freud and how relevant he is to your everyday work, you'll probably get kicked out pretty quick. Mm. You probably won't last long and it wouldn't be a great idea. But his ideas, I think one of the things, of course, he did go out of fashion, but I think one of the things people don't recognise about Freud is that he was an incredible learner. Mm. And some of his early work, he disagreed with later on. Mm. So people look at the early stuff and think, oh, that's doesn't make sense or they look at later stuff and think well he's completely contradicting himself he did contradict himself because he kept developing yes. his ideas yes. so I think that's not given enough credit mm. and there are lots of I mean he was the founder of psychoanalysis and there have been lots of things of ideas developed from him and from his thinking but that fundamental thing about the unconscious has been there throughout mm. and I think I think it's remarkably straightforward to introduce it to people actually well obviously I'm already a convert but I'm but I'm <laughs> sort of in I'm interested to think how because he's he's mentioned so little in contemporary culture isn't he and mm. psycho I think lots of people think psychoanalysis and its ideas is you know, kind of Woody Allen cliche, a bit, a bit passe, but the depth of it. I mean, for example, if one thinks about what is fashionable, which is things like CBT, the kind of very practical, um, focused, quick stuff, which is fine. You know, as far as I'm concerned, whatever works really. Um, well, whatever works within reason, as long as it's not harming people or based on absolute nonsense. But um, I'm sort of wondering as well, thinking about all these business books that. That's, that so many CEOs gobble up, which are kind of along the lines of, here's my slightly wacky or rather my slightly counterintuitive theory. And you'll find that if you look at the world through this lens, about which I've written 250 gripping pages, having interviewed X number of people, you will then be able to apply the following principles to your organization and everything will be fine, which of course is absolute nonsense. Yes. But the work you do is um, kind of slow, torturous, rather uncomfortable, sometimes yes. very painful. Yes. And people generally speaking, um, prefer quick solutions yes. how do you how much appetite is there for the kind of work you do and how do you persuade people that it's worth doing mm. 
Um, I think the appetite is very mixed. I suspect it will. And, and at the beginning of lock, the first lockdown, my work fell off a cliff completely. But then new clients started coming because they knew they were desperate for something. And I think it might continue to increase as people are, some people are thinking we do need to relook at what we do and we can't just look at the quick fixes like CBT, which is great for some things, but to have it as a panacea for everything is a disaster. Mm. Um, and, and that's the world we're in, technological speed, prime, prime ministerial false promises of speed, you know, it's mm. everywhere, isn't it? Mm. But I think there are quite, I think there are a lot of people who know that that doesn't work and are interested in something much deeper and more challenging and are more prepared to put the time in. Mm. In terms of persuading people, um, to be brutally honest, I don't really try to. No, there's no point, is there? You, you, no. you know. I don't really try to. Mm. But it is also a business and um, anyone who, who works as a consultant or a coach or whatever is building a business unless the work just lands on a plate from we don't know where Mars or from as an associate for someone else's organization. How are you with that side of things and the kind I mean, you've just said you don't really try to persuade, but you still have to get clients and presumably had to start somewhere. How yeah. do you find that side of things? Do you enjoy it? Do you find it easy? um neither <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't enjoy that and I don't really find it easy um I I think I think one thing that is very helpful for me this is age again I'm of an age where thank god I don't need to madly secure loads of finance and I don't need to think how will I support children through university or whatever it may be I don't have any of that that's incredibly helpful mm -hmm. and I know I'm very privileged in being in that position so that helps that mm -hmm. I can sort of think well okay it's not going to be great this month or these few months but okay um, and and largely the work comes from word of mouth and it does kind of generate itself and I haven't gone looking for it for a long time I have to admit but when I did have to go looking for it which I certainly did mm. um, I, I did rather wild manic things like I remember this was years ago years and years ago I wrote to every head teacher in the borough I lived in. And as I was madly, really manically doing it, I sort of knew this was a bit stupid, but somehow I felt like I was doing something. Yeah. So I carried yeah. on. It got, <laughs> it produced nothing. Last, last week I interviewed Dan Pink and he wrote a book. Um, I heard some of that. His new book is about regret. And, but his, his, um, he wrote a book some years ago called To Sell as Human, which I did read, but I couldn't find it anywhere actually. And I remember at the time, you know, trying to persuade myself that trying to sell would not be such a bad thing. And I, I can't remember it, a bit of an indictment, but I can't remember it, unfortunately. But I, and I, I know, I understand you can 
train yourself to not mind it but oh my god it just kind of the thought of selling anything to me is I, I just find it absolutely horrific I mean it's what one thing that's really interesting to me is my reaction about selling in a sense I'm selling by promoting my book mm. I have no trouble at all I have no trouble. I'm so proud and passionate about my book. Mm. On, on Friday, my publicist, editor and agent came for lunch to celebrate. And I was telling them that I'd been round bookshops and I'd take it out and say, look, isn't it beautiful? And I think it's absolutely beautiful. Mm, it is. So I stand there saying, I'm so excited, isn't it beautiful? And I was in one Waterstones and the customer nearby said, I'm excited now. <laughs> you know? So I can promote that without any difficulty. I think, and so it's interesting, isn't it? Where on a, you know, what, what we regard as kind of okay and what we don't regard as okay. Yeah. But I absolutely agree that um, enthusiasm about, I, I, well, I, I think there are cultural things about shame about selling actually that can kick in because True. I'm very proud of my book you're very proud of your book other things I do I also know I can do well and that I'm not I'm not trying I mean I don't try but I wouldn't be shoving down someone's throat something that would be bad for them or that they they might not want it but it wouldn't be offering them a bad product but I, I think culturally that there is sort of particularly I mean I know your father was um a professor and my yeah. background was very much public service and there's probably a cultural aversion in my family and background to selling as something yeah. a bit kind of um not what vulgar. we don't do. yeah vulgar yeah. exactly mine yeah. too I, I mean a professor doesn't approve of selling no nor does a senior civil servant no i'm sure i'm sure it's vulgar it's shameful it's a bit grubby yes yes exactly exactly mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you, you talk about how um, so many workplaces have become dehumanized mm. and this sort of huge uh, emphasis on profit and productivity. And you say, we try to rationalize and control our ways of working as if we were robots. Clearly that's not going to boost anyone's mental health. But at the same time, there is this fashion for talking about mental health and well-being and so on. How far do you think that is lip service and how far do you actually think it makes a difference? I think some organisations have done brilliantly in trying to take this seriously and really are concerned and really are trying to make some changes. But I think a lot are ticking boxes and saying, oh, yes, of course, we care about mental health. Actually, what they do is respond, if, if you're lucky, they respond to mental ill health. Exactly, yeah. And I think we have to put mental health at the centre of how we work. What helps people be healthy? Mm. What helps a workforce be well? And that will link to productivity as well. But it's not about, oh, God, we're stressing them so much that they're all collapsing. We better bring in mindfulness. Exactly, exactly. Which yeah. I think is, is, is too common. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just remembering I've got to do a shoot for the Daily Mail on Thursday, which I wasn't expecting. I was remembering, I think the last shoot I did for the Mail was a piece I was meant to write about uh, some woman who, who was teaching 
mindfulness to businesses and honestly it was so boring they couldn't in the end they couldn't print the piece i had to come out with some completely tiny thing she said and make a piece about that was about asking for a pay rise actually because that was quite interesting about the rest of it like who wants to hear about mindfulness in business i mean it's just a tiny sticking plaster if you are causing an environment if you are creating an environment that is toxic and creates stress for people then all the mindfulness in the world or massage chairs or whatever else or ping pong balls or bean bags or whatever other infantilizing things you might want to offer are not going to make any kind of a difference are they no and everybody knows it you know people aren't stupid they know and there's one chapter where someone gets very cross says they keep they're saying mindfulness and this and that but what about actually thinking about the impossible workload they're giving mm. us and what about this and that and the other mm. people know when they're just being fobbed off with something and yes mm. it might be very nice to offer people yoga or mindfulness as well as changing other things but not instead of one of the uh, in one of the stories you talk about um two women who are working together to create a kind of mini conference a two-day conference i think and one of the women was keen to foster creativity by keeping things quite loose and it was a complete disaster because uh, there wasn't enough structure and people didn't know what they were meant to be doing and so on and the other woman the whole thing was was dreadful and the other woman was saying yes but you need the structure and um and I, I thought about, I, I used to run the Poetry Society many years ago, and um, you know, I'm a big fan of poetry. And I thought about the sonnet and how um, tightness of form, poetic form, or any other kind of artistic structure is what uh, allows you the, you know, within that, obviously Shakespeare shows us what can be done. Within that, there is great creative freedom. Within the structure, the constraint, you find, uh, you can find great, freedom or, or creativity and i just wondered every organization wants to promote creativity but what in your views genuinely enables an organization to be creative i think culture is enormously important telling people to be creative but then at the same time being highly critical if things aren't brilliant that sure as anything knocks out creativity I think having a safe enough environment, not cosy, cosy mm. knocks out creativity, mm. but safe enough with a structure where you know where you are and that helps creativity. Mm. And I think, but also recognizing that it comes in different ways for different people. So a creativity meeting at nine o'clock on a Wednesday probably isn't gonna cut it. <laughs> but just having that kind of open, creative, curious, collaborative culture that can support people to have different ideas and nobody's going to ridicule you they'll think with you about your different ideas I think mm -hmm. those things support creativity mm -hmm. but you do need like in psychoanalysis anything can happen in a session but the structure you know you'll start on time you'll finish on time the analyst will stay in role those things provide the safety to do what can be very risky work. Mm. So what do you think, beyond the, the writing, within the work itself, what do you think are the most creative aspects of your work? 
um, probably having the really difficult conversations, encouraging, helping teams to have the really difficult conversations. I think that can be really creative, actually. Mm. And also helping people individually or a team to suddenly think, I may be on the wrong path. Maybe this is another way of seeing it. And I don't have to keep banging on that drum. I can see it differently. Or even I can leave. You know, some of those things can be creative. But it's really getting under the surface of it's, it's un unblocking the stuck patterns mm. and the stuck tram lines I find that really creative and giving people helping I can't give people courage but I can help people in in an environment to find their courage to say things that will start to change the way they feel about their work mm. the way they work with each other the way they speak together the way they offer their service and Clearly, the work can be very powerful, but there must be times when even though the leaders or whoever commissions it think they want change and say they want change, they actually don't really want change or at least they're not prepared to put in the work uh, that will bring about the change. In that situation, do you ever give up? Or what do you do? What do you do when it becomes apparent that it's not going to be possible for that change to happen? There was, uh, you remind me of an organisation where I felt that the team were so scared to speak openly that I kind of did pull the work because it felt completely impossible. I realised that they, I couldn't do anything about the fear. I tried and tried and tried and they tried and tried and tried and they were very courageous. Mm. But there was something that couldn't, be changed about that and I stopped the work because it was pointless mm. and actually things changed for them and they called me back which was great but mm. yes there may be times where I think no it just it's not going to be possible it's very rare I mean it's very difficult work the the opening chapter is about working with people who work with men who are addicted to alcohol and drugs and it sounded an absolute nightmare job do you ever hate the work yeah yeah there are times where I I mean I think it, it's not that chapter it's another one and I've forgotten the title of it now repeating patterns where they talk about the elephant in the room and they're thinking yes. of getting rid of my sessions. And I think, fucking excuse me, get rid of them now. Let me just go. Yes. I don't want to bleed with you. <laughs> I don't want to work with you. Who would ever want to work with you? And I hated them at that moment. Mm. It was very salutary and I did feel a bit ashamed, but it, it also I recognised something that was, it helped me understand what the hell was going on. But if I hate the work, it has meaning. And that's yes. what I have learned. But I can't, I can't avoid the step of the hatred in order to get to the meaning. You can't intellectualise your way out of that 
to find the meaning. You've got to just be open mm. to the different emotions, which could be despair or sadness or happiness or hatred or rage or whatever. And then you'll come to the understanding. Well, you hope. You hope you'll come to the understanding. You have to you... also be open to the fact that you might not. Mm. And finally, if somebody is really quite miserable in their work and they're not sure exactly what the problem is, where would you advise them to start? I'd advise them to start with themselves and try and think about, is this my pattern? You know, do I always get to year three and feel miserable in a job? Do I always think the grass is greener somewhere else? Is that my pattern? Because if that is, then just leaving now is not going to help me. But if this is never my pattern, then something else might be going on. So I encourage them to really try and work out what is usual or unusual for them. I'd also say in the middle of a pandemic, for instance, and I know we're in a different phase now, but we're not out of a pandemic. Um, think carefully before doing making major decisions because we can all make them for strange reasons when we're under a lot of stress mm. so the starting place is our own awareness but also thinking about what our fear is you know are we terrified to leave are we are we glued unhelpfully to the job that we makes us miserable are we invested in the misery or are we terrified about maybe maybe we could be happier and successful what what stops us changing things very interesting very interesting indeed it's been a real pleasure to talk to you gabriella thanks very much indeed and very best of luck with the with the book which i really loved thank you so much a real pleasure to talk to you and very best of luck with your book thanks so much for listening this is the last episode in the current season of the art of work but we'll be back if you subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any of the main directories, you'll be the first to know when a new season drops. My free Substack newsletter, The Art of Work, will continue, so do sign up to that. And do follow at The Art of Work on Twitter or at theartofwork.co on Instagram, which is also the name of the website. I'm now taking on a few coaching clients, so if you'd like to explore this, do drop me a line via the website. And if you're in London, do come along to the launch of my new book, Outside the Sky is Blue. It's at Waterson's Piccadilly on Thursday the 17th of February. It will be lovely to see you there.